Vespi, I'm 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 tired of this. I'm tired of people not being subscribed to Fangoria. For over 40 years now, Fangoria has been out here releasing itself upon the wild and they're still going strong, bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, yes, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% on your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Today we are tackling uh, a title that, uh, frankly, I'm kind of surprised it took this long for us to uh, get around to. And it's a film directed by someone who's actually been on the show a couple of times, which makes this uh, sort of interesting. If uh, said person is listening to this episode, uh, anything uncomplimentary that gets said, that all goes toward Vespi. I just want to make that clear up front. You know, it's always my fault. Always. Uh, Today's guest is a freelance writer whose work you've seen in Time Magazine, the New York Times, and on both Vulture and BuzzFeed News. He was also, quite notably, the co-host of Barnes & Noble's Stephen King podcast, King of the Dark, and one of our favorite follows on Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Lewis Peitzman. Lewis, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I feel very welcomed, so thank you for that. Excellent. Okay, so well, I do have a bone to pick with you because I don't think there were any Stephen King podcasts before we started one. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's that true. That is true. Yes, I, uh, I, I, I don't know how that happened, um, but uh, yeah, no, I did. That's probably true. I don't how many Stephen King podcasts do you think there are? There's got to be, there's got to be like two dozen, right? The, I mean, the truth is, I actually before uh, you guys started this podcast. I had been like, I should start a Stephen King movie podcast and wanted to see how many there were. And they're really like, there was like maybe one other that seemed kind of defunct. Um, but then you you all swooped in there and, and I can't compete with this. So I will, <laughs> I will back off from that idea. But but I really was like, I, I wanted to keep the Stephen King podcast going after King of the Dark ended. Uh, how long did that run for? We did that for uh, a few months. It was like a limited run podcast, and it was supposed to kind of like be, you know, uh, Stephen King's career uh, up to his latest release. I think it was how to, was it The Outsider. I think that was. Oh, I don't right feel bad if I'm if I'm wrong about that, but um, yeah. So it was like designed to kind of like highlight some of the big moments from his career um, slash the books that we just wanted to talk about, and it was book based. But I was as like a Stephen King movie person, also very into talking about the adaptations. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because King writes so cinematically 
even more so than the average, like talking about the differences between Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park and Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park or, or what have you. Uh, there's just something a little bit more rich about King's adaptation process when it goes wrong, when it goes right. There's, I don't know. I, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it, it all boils down to King's talent with character and writing cinematically. He writes like movies. There's cuts like movies in, in his writing. Um, yeah. So yeah, that'd yeah, be my th- guess. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that, you know, as you said, he's very cinematic in that way. And also there are so many fascinating failures and achievements and you kind of can't not talk about that when you're talking about his work. Right. It's sort of, it's sort of wild. The, the breadth of quality across the entire, like Stephen King filmography. Right. As you know, from doing this podcast, I I ranked all of the movies for uh, BuzzFeed when I was there. So Mm -hmm. I had a journey of watching all of them back to back. And it's really a roller coaster. How long did that take? I was very depressed. So I it was like (laughs) I I, I, was like after a breakup and I did it in two months. Um, it's like nonstop, but I, I, my rule was that it had to be something, it had to be like either, I didn't do TV series unless they were like a limited series or a mini series. Mm -hmm. And I only did like direct adaptations. So not original works by King, uh, and not sequels. So it was, it was, it was limited, but I still had to like, you know, I, I still is a lot. There were still, I think 40 to 50 on there. (laughs) You're right. But you were able to avoid the children of the corn sequels and. I uh, was able to, but even what, I mean, Children of the Corn itself was like enough punishment and the, you know, the, the remake, uh, which with the kind of, um, the Vietnam flashback sex scene, um, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've done, have you seen the sci-fi original version of Children of the Corn? No, no, well, well, spoiler alert, there is a, a weird like Vietnam war flashback intercut with a scene of like two of the newly grown adults of the Children of the Corn, uh, consummating their relationship. Um, <laughs> it's really, well, ter- it's, it. it's like uniquely terrible. Um, but like also not uniquely terrible. Cause if you watch enough of these adaptations, you realize that there are so many distinct ways to do a bad Stephen King, uh, adaptation. Um, is that one, is that one a limited series or it's like a movie? That was a, that was a movie that was a made for TV movie. Holy it might've shit. been like made for something else and it ended up on the sci-fi channel, but, uh, it is a movie <laughs> made for a uh, can premiere is what it sounds like. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it has its moments Heretofore, We have not opened the door to any of the Stephen King sequels. I think that's going to change soon. The show's, you know, hopefully going to be going on for a while. So I kind of figure we're going to have to do that to some degree, but man, I don't know what it would take to get me to watch all the children of the corn sequels. Like, I just don't think I'm going to do it. There's like seven or eight of those motherfuckers, you know, like, yeah, there are quite, there are quite a lot. I mean, there are some sequels that I think are really interesting. Like I, I, I watched pet cemetery too. And I was like, okay, like, I don't love this, but I, I am interested in what, what's happening here. And, uh, I was listening to your Mangler episode. I know you talked about the Mangler 2.0, you know, <laughs> fascinating uh, that exists. So, you know, there are there are certainly sequels that I think are worth talking about, but I don't know if Children of the Corn 17 is one of them. Yeah, totally agreed. Totally agreed. I will say that there's a little bit of crazy nostalgia that I have about that, uh, those Children of the Corn things, because those, their heyday were at like the peak of 
video stores, right? So yeah. like every single, it seemed like every like three months I would go to the video store and there'd be a new Children of the Corn cover, you know, up on the new release wall. And I, I very rarely rented them. I, I rented them a couple of times, but you know, after I've been burned, <laughs> I was like, nope, never again. I don't care how cool the image of a 10 year old holding a scythe is on the cover or whatever. <laughs> not, I not believe, I Naomi, Naomi Watts, I think got her start in one of those. There are right. a few like big names who got their starts in those movies. They were churning out, as you said, every three months. Uh, so that's you true. Know, Robert, that. Robert De Niro. That's Robert right. De Niro famously mm-hmm. got his start in uh, children of the corn. I think it's 14 uh, cyber corn. Was the name of that one? Yeah. Um, if you, I feel like if any in any franchise you get far enough, it's like a cyber version of it. It's like in Hellraiser, Hellraiser like eight or whatever is like a digital Hellraiser. So I think it's just inevitable that happens. Yeah, right. They had the they had the found footage There's, Halloween one that was originally called MichaelMyers.com. Then they changed it to what? Oh uh, my fucking god! What was the one? It's the one Resurrect Resurrection. Yeah, it's Resurrection. Yeah. yeah. It would have yeah. been michaelmyers.com, much better title, frankly. <laughs> Can you imagine how, how much harder that movie would be getting clowned these days if it was <laughs> michaelmyers.com? It's we, already we, pretty. I, I don't know if it's like beloved online um, as is, but... Uh, no, but if uh, that were the name of it, I bet yes. we—I bet you'd see a one joke about it every day on Twitter. If that were the name <laughs> and if they'd kept in the Tyra Banks death scene, uh, it would have had a longer camp shelf life. <laughs> in all likelihood um so you're you're clearly a stephen king guy tell us about your your stephen king origin story like when did he first come onto your radar uh i started reading stephen king when i was in middle school i was like the kid who had the stephen king book in my history book like under the desk uh reading during class because what i his history i mean it has not served me i i don't know i i didn't i wasn't learning so i don't know if it would have served me but um yeah, I was reading Stephen King in middle school. I I think my first Stephen King was it. I think because I was like, oh, it's it's kids fighting an evil clown. Not a book for kids, uh, as it turns out. But, you know, you learn a lot. And that's uh, it's a fun growth experience. Um, and then I just I read a lot of King when I was like 12, 13. And I loved it. I remember Pet Cemetery really scared me when I was that age and also still. And um, The Shining, uh, but I kind of yeah, I just I just read as much as I could, and then all through high school, yeah, I I, I read a, a quite a bit of Stephen King, and then for the podcast, obviously, I sort of picked up the ones that I hadn't read uh, and was able to catch up a bit. So, what was it that got you to pick up a book in the first place? Did it get recommended or I was I was like a kid, kid I was a kid who loved horror, right and on. I was reading a lot of those like you know kind of i don't you know those ya horror i mean i read like goosebumps obviously and then you know Pike, right kind of and shit. then but there, there were all those sort of like um horror short story collections for kids that came out right. um in the in the late 90s early 2000s and um i was i was really into all of that and stephen king was just like you know you you just kind of absorb so much of it from pop culture osmosis even in a sort of early internet day like you you got a lot of it and um I just wanted to be a part of that world. So I, 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 yeah, I read a lot. I read more than I should have. And, um, you know, it warped me for life. And I'm very grateful. It sounds like your parents were pretty permissible. 
then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, they never really stopped me from watching. I, I was really scared of, of horror movies as a kid. Um, so I really wasn't like sneaking away to watch scary movies. I was really just reading books. And I think they kind of figured that, you know, books are I don't less likely to give me nightmares. Many of them did give me nightmares. But I, I think they were just kind of like, this is probably fine. They weren't monitoring what I was reading. They were pretty permissive about like TV and movies too, but I I really wasn't trying to rent scary movies. And when I did rent Pet Cemetery, uh, it turns out the movie is uh, also very scary for a child. <laughs> um, it's like it has you know I think it's like one of the scarier Stephen King movies. And uh, yeah, I I uh, that was rough. So mostly stuck to the books. That's an interesting point because I think that that's probably the case for me too. Like where. There were things I saw at too early an age. I remember the Michael Jackson thriller video fucked me up. I remember the the heart ripping scene in Temple of Doom was a no go for me at that age. You know, this was all shit my parents were like renting at the video store, right. or whatever. Um, but I Temple was reading Doom famously, famously and just fascinated you know, with that, monsters. That a lot of kids watch Temple of Doom, and then they had to make the rating system a little more specific. <laughs> yeah. Had to reconfigure their whole shit over over that one, but the books I enjoyed the morbidity of scary books, and you know I lo- I loved horror even from an early age, but I wasn't like I, I definitely wasn't seeking out the movies, and I don't recall the books any any books I ever read really giving me any nightmares. In fact, I think the first time I watched a thing that I don't I, I don't think Temple of Doom or the Michael Jackson thriller video gave me nightmares. They just sent me fleeing from the room. But I, I do remember when I was a kid, watch we, my family watched twin peaks together. And when you finally found out that Leland killed Laura, that fucked me up real good. Cause the, the idea that a parent could kill their own child had just not really occurred to me at that point, I guess. And I remember being like having like about a week's worth of, a nightmares over the that one, which I didn't share with my parents because I didn't want my Twin Peaks. You don't want to stop watching. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah I, I think I think you know I I was very scared of. I remember going to Blockbuster and like I would look at. I was very fascinated by horror, but I would like look at the covers and I was really scared of them. I had like a severe Freddy Krueger phobia where I like couldn't look mm-hmm. at his face. I remember when they used to show Tales from the Crypt promos on TV. I was like terrified of the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> And so I wasn't watching any of that. Um, but I think, you know, my imagination was better because I wasn't watching anything. So I was scared of like imagery in the books because um, right. I had, to, you know, that was like the scariest thing that I was really dealing with. Um, but I remember things like I remember that in The Shining uh, when Danny sees like the roke mallet covered in blood and matted hair on the on the seat of the car that like stuck with me as a, as a 12 or 13 year old. I was very that was like very scary to me. And uh Anything involving, you know, Pet Cemetery, that the sort of chunk of of head missing in the brain and all that, too much, too much for for pre adolescent me. Eric, do you remember the first uh, piece of entertainment you consumed that gave you a nightmare? Yeah, I didn't really have night. Almost, still to this day, I, I don't have straight up scary nightmares uh, all my nightmares are all stress dream related uh so i never really had that thing where it's like i, I woke up with 
an image from a horror movie in my mind or I was being chased by Freddy Krueger or whatever. Matter of fact, I do remember uh, as a kid, I'm we're probably I'm in my tween years here, 12, 13 ish. I do remember having a dream with Freddy Krueger in it. But in my dream, I'm like, like, hey, dude, like, I'm with you. Why don't we just fuck up these asshole teenagers? And Freddie was like, "Cool, you can be my sidekick." So that that was <laughs> that that was my uh, you know my horror iconography images. Like I don't know, I'm trying to think of. I mentioned before on this podcast, I think when we were talking about Toby Hooper's work, that like my first memory period is uh, kind of a traumatic one, and that is the I remember being about two two years old or two or three years old, and I woke up in my babysitter's lap. I guess my mom, my mom was a single mom. She must have been at work or whatever. And uh, and my babysitter was watching Poltergeist on TV. And uh, the image that I remember, and this is the earliest image that I can I can track, is uh, the coffins coming up out of the ground, spilling out the you know, the, the corpses, you know, in, in front of the family. And so my, my first memory is the, is the coffin coming up uh, out of the ground in between Craig T Nelson and his family as she's the mom screaming, help us. And the dad, you know, then the coffin like opens up and the, the, the mummified corpse with the blowing hair um, is is shown. So that is, that is, you know, maybe, (laughs) maybe that was a shock to the system. I got vaccinated against being scared of horror movies uh, at at that point. But yeah, no, I, I remember like little, little bits and pieces. There was also a movie that I, it took me years to track down. I think it's called fortress now, but it's, um, it, it was like an Australian movie about a, a group of, of Australian school kids and their, like young hot teacher that uh, get uh, tormented by bandits wearing masks uh, of, and so there's like an Easter bunny mask. There's a, a father Christmas Santa Claus mask. And, and I remember watching that, like peeking over the, the back of the couch. My mom thought I was asleep and she was watching it. And so she thought I was asleep in my room and I'd snuck down to watch it behind her. Um, and I remember that that like really affected me because there's, there's like uh, kids that, you know, that are legit threatened and there's like a scene where they're in the outback, Australian outback somewhere. And it was all like foreign looking and, you know, they all had accents, which I hadn't heard before. And it was like a very surreal thing. And there was that edge of danger that I had, uh, because I wasn't supposed to be there watching it. And so that gave it even more of a mystique to it. That would have fucked your mom up if she turned around and saw you peeking over the edge of the couch during. A, <laughs> yeah, during and I was wearing my movie. father Christmas mask too. Which I just <laughs> well, thankfully there are no kids in peril in Doctor Sleep, so there's <laughs> nothing to worry about there. Um, yeah. One thing, uh, one recurring theme on this show that we found is that The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining, was sort of a seminal experience for most budding horror fans of a certain age. You know, you saw it at a sleepover and it fucked you up or your parents rented it for you and it fucked you up, whatever. So um, I think that kind of plays into what we're talking about here, that that title looms large. And I think that's a good segue into uh, your choice today. Like, what, what did you what did you bring us to talk about? I, I brought Dr. Sleep, um, mm-hmm. which is a sequel to The Shining. Uh, both the book and the movie. Um, 
I yeah, I I I really dig this movie. I I also love the book. They're very different um in in some some specific ways. But yeah, a lot of that is because of how much I love The Shining and how the movie is very much, you know, an adaptation of King's book and also a sequel to Kubrick's The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um and and like really finds the the middle ground in in a way that I am fascinated by. So I I'm a big fan. Um, had not had not read the book until uh, doing the King of the Dark podcast, and then uh, watched the movie, and then watched the director's cut uh, for this podcast because I had not seen it. It's good, three hours long. Good three hours. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a miracle movie. We we've mentioned this before. Like it might Doctor Sleep might not be up there with like a Shawshank or uh, the Kubrick Shining, you know, or Misery, but you know, in many ways, it is like the most difficult uh, and successful King adaptation in that it had the impossible task of merging both of those worlds, both in, you know, it's like, it would be like if they made a star Wars movie that made people who loved, uh, you know, the, the prequels in the original trilogy, you know, you know, bond together or, you know, people who fucking love last Jedi and people who hate last Jedi come, come to a, a middle ground, you know, they, 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 that, that, that no one liked if they, if they yeah. found the, found the middle ground. Yeah. But, but it's, it, it's an impossible needle to thread and, and Flanagan somehow did it. And, and it, I'll never cease to be amazed by the, razor thin line that he walked uh with that film yeah he absolutely did not have to make it a sequel to the kubrick version as well you know he could have done a straight adaptation of the book that it works as well as it does is a miracle and the just the size of of flanagan's balls to come in there and be like okay but we're gonna add this element to it that's the riskiest goddamn thing i've like, okay, when they announced that Flanagan was doing Gerald's game, and I think I've told him this on our show. Like, I was like, how on earth is someone going to do a Gerald's game movie and make it work? Like, that's just not going to work. And then I saw it and was like, holy shit, this is amazing. You know, that's, of course, that's the way you do it. Of course, like, this is how it would work. Um, and then shortly after that, I think they announced him for Dr. Sleep. And I was like, this man is crazy. Like, this is <laughs> lunatic behavior. Like, he rolled the dice the first time, and now he's going back for seconds and, like, going to try to make a sequel to The Shining. And I, and I just, you know, uh, I was very, very skeptical because I didn't like the book. In fact, I never finished reading it, which I'm sure we're going to find out at length here in a moment. But um, it's just, he is two for two in terms of, King movies that absolutely, in my opinion, should not have worked on screen. And he just fucking nailed it. Like it's, it's unreal what, what he's done in uh, King's world so far. Yeah. Mike are you, Flanagan a, are you a, the, Mike, hold on a second. Mike Flanagan's the Lord and Miller of Stephen King adaptations. Yes. yes Every, absolutely. everything that, that uh, they do should not work. 21 jump street should not have been a fucking awesome movie. The Lego movie should have sucked. You know, Gerald's game in no way should translate into a good movie. Um, Dr. Sleep has such a huge mountain to climb. Even if you ignore the Kubrick aspect of it, he has to sell, you know, a roving band of Romani style psychic vampires that kill kids was always going to be uh, a bigger ask for, you know, as a shining follow up uh, than just like 
a dude with an axe in a in a hotel. Totally. You know? So even I mean, ignoring with, the 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 giant mountain of of Kubrick's movie, uh, with the it, yeah that that book was was a tough adapt anyway. Without the Kubrick element, even how would you sell it? You know, this is a sequel to The Shining, and then it's a trailer that looks absolutely nothing like The Shining. There are no recognizable characters from it. You know, like it's an impossible task. You know, and he and he somehow figured it out. Like it, and, it's, and every step of the way, can you imagine like the conversation he must have had with Stephen King to say, "Hey, guess what? I'm doing this." He goes, "Cool, great," and then he, he goes. And you know what? I'm going to uh, and by I'm going way. to accept the Kubrick movie as being uh, canon and jumping off from there. And, and King's like, uh, "Excuse me, what now?" You know, it's like, can you imagine that? Like, I can't. That that dude must be like politician level charming. Like, he's got to be the Rock, right? I think. I think yeah. it's also. I mean, part of it is that he kind of like he captures so much of what King wanted to see in the adaptation of the shining. So right, he ends up sort right. of like, you know, it's, it, it, it's very much a sequel to Kubrick's the shining, but it's also like, it goes back to King's original novel and it, you know, King's big complaint about the shining is like that. It's a cold movie and the book is warm and that's very literal, but also like the book ends with this big explosion and the, the movie does not. Um, and like to kind of like go back to that, it's almost like, okay, you were right. And we're going to like do the shining this way. And that sort of settles the the issue and murders them together. But I agree with you. I mean, part of the 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 hat trick here, not the rose, the hat trick, but uh, <laughs> that like the the true knot is like is they're great, and and Rose the Hat is a great villain, and all of this stuff works. And on top of that, you have um, you know the shining stuff that shouldn't work that that works with it. But I think you're right. I mean, the the book itself is is a bit of a tough sell because it's a sequel to The Shining that doesn't really need to be a sequel to The Shining. Sure, there's like, uh, I mean, there's alcoholism and 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 all that, but that's not uh, unique to one Stephen King uh, book. Addiction, in fact, runs throughout many of his books, along with struggling writers and and people who are haunted. Um, but I I you know. I love the book. I'm actually curious why why you did not love the book, but I do. I, I, there's something about the way the movie works that um, that like got me in a different way than the book, and and that's just as a fan of the the Kubrick movie. Yeah, Scott, explain yourself. I well, I didn't like, I didn't like the idea of a Shining sequel. Just period. I was very resistant to this. In some cases, uh, I just don't give a shit. Yeah, make a sequel to that. Like. Yeah, I'll watch more of that or I'll read more of that. Like, I don't give a fuck. But with Dr. Sleep, The Shining, again, like looms so large for me. I'm trying to think of any other comparable thing that didn't already get sequels. You know, some other standalone thing that, you know, I I don't think there is a comparison. But I didn't like it on a uh, I didn't like its very existence, you know, so I was starting from that point. But of course, I got the book when it came out, or I got it on audiobook. And uh, around that time, I was having to go back and forth to Houston for a couple of weeks for whatever reason. I don't even remember at this point. And so I listened to uh, a good chunk of it, and I didn't like the tone of it. I didn't like there was a fan fictiony feel to it for me that I I couldn't I couldn't shake that feeling. Like this shouldn't have been written. This shouldn't be. 
you know, happening right now. Um, I just didn't, I didn't like it. And so I got maybe, I don't know, 10 hours into that, uh, audio book and was like, you know what, this just isn't for me. You know, I'm, I'm glad that other, other people like it, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to get past my personal bullshit about this. I, and then, I, I, I lo- sorry, go ahead. I, I, but I want to touch on your fan fiction thing in a second. No, go ahead. Oh, I just, I mean, I think that's like such a great, you were totally right in that way. And I think that so much of like later stage Stephen King is like fanfic of Stephen King. And, you know, for better or worse, sometimes it really works for me. Like the Dark Tower stuff really works for me, even though a lot of those books are are very fanfic It's like, what if these characters existed in an alternate universe and interacted with each other? Um, right. But there's also that like scene in 112263 where, you know, he meets the kids from it and they like hang out for a bit. And it's the most mm-hmm. I, I like totally hate it because it's just like it's absurd fanfic. But like I like the fanfic quality of Dr. Sleep and think the movie actually like ups that a lot. And the climax of the movie Dr. Sleep is like extreme fanfic of like, what if the twin girls in the hallway come back and attack? It's like a really, it's like a little bit silly, but it, but it works for me, but I see it as like a positive. I see it as like good fanfic. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. And again, like tonally, I just wasn't with it. I found it to be very sad. I don't really know what else to add to that. I just, I didn't like the way it felt. I didn't like that it existed. I didn't, I didn't like how Danny was written just like top to bottom. I was like, this isn't for me. And then once the true knot came into it, I was also like, what is happening now? Like fucking psychic vampires. This one's name is Rose the hat. Like this is crow daddy. What are you doing? (laughs) You know? And I just, I just wasn't on board with it. And so you know, this this compounded the way I felt about it before, like once the announcement w- was made that Mike was going to do it. It was just like, man, how the fuck are you going to make this work? And I I was skeptical, incorrectly skeptical, right up until the moment I saw it. And uh, I remember my old colleague from uh, Birth Movies Death, Evan Sadoff, like came up from Houston just so we could go see this thing together and, and see what we thought. And we both fucking loved it like i think like halfway through the movie i i think one of us turned to the other and was like this fucking rules you know this is this is excellent and i love the i like the director's cut even more which is also a rare thing a lot of times with director's cuts i find that it's like a bit too much or in in some circumstances it can completely undermine my opinion of the movie that I had in the first place, you know, versus a theatrical cut. That's always a dicey proposition. But um, in this case, I, I think it did make it better. Um, it's so rare when they're both good too. when like, you can kind of make a case for, for either of them. I think yeah, totally. it's great, but I think the theatrical cut is also great. So I don't think that like, you know, if someone's like, I can't watch three hours of this, I would say, watch the two and a half hour version also worth your time. But if you can spare an extra half hour, director's cut is great. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where the director's cut is longer, but it, I think it it is paced better. Um, the way that they break it up into like novelistic chapters s- somehow works. Kind of like uh, I'm trying to think. There was another s- some of the extended editions of Lord of the Rings, and I, I haven't watched uh, all those. I I've got the Blu-ray for the 4K set um, that I need to go through and, and rewatch and compare, but. Um, but I remember having the same feeling where like this thing is like 30 minutes longer, but it feels like it's moving faster because of the, um, the edit. And that's how I felt with the doctor sleep. 
director's cut. Hmm. I will say that the the book could have used some cuts, and I think the movie <laughs> was smart about what it adapted and what it didn't. The stuff about Abra's family, I don't know how far you got on the book, and if you know about the big reveal about Abra's family... <laughs> I can spoil the book, right? Like people. Oh yeah. 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 Everything. Yeah. But that should, we we should, I realize right now we hadn't, haven't really done an overview of the plot of this thing for anyone. Oh, right. Right. Maybe. Do you want to do the honors on that? Lewis? The overview of the plot. Yeah. Um, Just the the overview of the, uh, yeah. Overview of the plot. And then, uh, and and go ahead and slip that spoiler in there. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The overview of the plot is that, you know, Decades after the events of a few decades after the events of The Shining, Dan Torrance has grown up and, you know, uh, recovering alcoholic. He's sort of made a mess of his life. He drank a lot to deal with the demons of his childhood and his psychic gifts. And he ends up connecting with uh, this psychically connecting with this girl, Abra, who also has The Shining. They link up um, and she is uh, having visions of the true knot, which are this group of, of psychic vampires who um, feed on the shining. Uh, so they kind of, they, they go after, it sounds ridiculous and it is, it but, like, but it works, but they go after like kids with the shining and torture them and, and, and eat their steam, which is when they it's uh, yeah, it's what comes out of their mouths when they're being tortured. It's horrifying. Um, and uh, so Abra and Dan take on this group, the true knot, and try to, you know, they, they want Abra because she's got an intense shining powers uh, mm. and they're very evil and bad. And so Dan and Abra stop them. And uh, that's that's the, you know, that's the basic plot of like the book and the movie, I would say. Yeah, that's, uh, that's there's some right. differences. Um, yeah. The part of the book that I wanted to get into is there's all this stuff with Abra's grandmother uh, who's mentioned in the movie. Uh, she has cancer. There's a whole thing in the climax of the book where they like take her cancer and inflict it on the tree. It's it's that part is Stephen King endings, you know, a little a little hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit, a bit, perhaps more miss than hit. And um, I I won't go into that too much, but but yes, one of the big reveals, and it's like I think it bothers me so much because it's one of those King reveals that is like 200 pages coming where you're just kind of waiting for them to say it, and uh-huh. it goes on forever is that um, Abra's grandmother had an affair with Jack Torrance and Dan what? is her actual uncle. Yeah. What the fuck? So, uh, w- which they thankfully do not do in the movie, but like when she's calling him uncle Dan, it turns out he actually is her uncle. Um, it's totally unnecessary. It's very, it's like a classic star Wars mistake of like, if these people like you're basically saying like on the one hand, these people like there are people with the shine all over and everyone has like some version of power and some are more powerful than others, but also they, they like these two really important ones happen to be related. It's really not necessary at all. Um, and I think it works better without it. Um, oh, hundred percent. Totally. They rape Palpatine. They rape Palpatine. The- <laughs> they, sure, they sure did. Um, uh, Abra, I, yeah. I like the, the movie version uh, is better in that, uh, a lot of ways, but I think that Rose the Hat kind of like links them and that she's sort of talking about there's just like this innate darkness to to all of us and to everyone, with, especially with this power and that like, you know, it's that kind of we're not so different you and I speech, but I think it works really well and that Dan obviously has like let darkness overcome him for so long. His, his dad was consumed by this darkness 
and Abra has some darkness in her. The book's epilogue, Dan Dan lives in the book, um, and the book's epilogue is is kind of about him talking to Abra as she's a little bit older, as she's dealing with you know her darkness that maybe she could use her powers in a a more negative way if she's not willing to control them. But uh, I like the movie touches on that. I am glad they are not biologically related because who cares? Right. Right. Well, and it, yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I love about the story and I loved it when I was reading it and I'm, and I think it's even better in the movie is how they trace Dan himself and how he's falling in the exact same traps that his father was up to a certain point at like a crucial juncture. He, he becomes what his father could have become. And I think maybe that's, you know, why King was so interested in telling the story because he's always been interested in Jack Torrance as uh kind of the troubled writer guy that is very much like King himself. Right. I think he sees a lot of himself in Jack Torrance for good. Uh, and he sees a lot of what Jack Torrance's uh, demons are as what he could become if he doesn't, keep on the light side right right so i think having having dan be the light side version of his father making the good choices where his father made poor choices it's the beating heart of dr sleep the book it's the beating heart of dr sleep the movie you can see it a little bit in in the original ending in the book uh jack torrance does make an appearance just like in the movie but it's a redemption appearance he helps save his son versus in flanagan's movie he does something which i think is more interesting is he has danny literally sitting and facing his father and seeing he sees the humanity still in this this figure right here's the thing that he's probably the most scared of you know in his life uh and the thing that he loves the most and how those can exist in a single image and the way that he deals with it is it to me it's so emotional i love it so much it is it is it is the reason why i think this this story is elevated uh beyond uh just kind of a run-of-the-mill stephen king adaptation we're well, talking I, about I, the bar scene with henry thomas right now yes correct yeah yeah i, I think of, one, of the, one of the issues though that like this touches on is that i think stephen king is way too sympathetic toward jack torrance uh, right. in the book the shining and in the miniseries adaptation that's like a very you know direct adaptation of the shining and i think that this adaptation of dr sleep kind of corrects some of that um but we can get into that after i don't want to I, I know scott had a, a point about the scene well I, w- I was just gonna say what a fucking tightrope to walk during that <laughs> scene you know you're gonna have a scene where Danny Torrance sits across that bar from Jack Torrance. So you're going to have to bring in a guy to play him. I remember before the movie being very concerned that there'd be like a CGI Jack and just like, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with that. And I'm glad they went in this other direction. By that point in the movie though, they've already introduced, you know, an an alternate Danny an alternate Wendy an alternate um, Dick uh, Dick Holleran. Yeah. And I just instantly went with, those new actors i i felt no like well he doesn't look exactly like him or any of that bullshit it was just like i went with it i was like okay so this is what we're doing and that he's really smart to instill that in you very early on so that when that scene with henry thomas does pop up you're already on board with this concept of the well they're not going to look exactly like him 
But also, Henry Thomas looks a lot like fucking it, young I Jack I mean, it's Thorne. very resonant, but it's not that Uncanny Valley thing of, like, we're going to do a deep fake here, and you're going to have to deal right. with it. It's such a better choice. Uh, I mean, the Wendy is, it, she's also great. But, but like, yeah. it's not Shelley Duvall, but it's fine. Like, you totally get it. You know who it is. You remember that character, and it, and it works perfectly. Totally. Totally. And that scene is probably my favorite in the entire movie. Uh, every time I watch it, I'm just like transfixed by it. I cannot take my eyes off the screen. It is it is so compelling and so brilliantly executed. Just having him in pri- profile like that the entire time. My, my wife has long refused to watch Dr. Sleep. Just out of principle because she does not think that there should be a sequel to The Shining. Shining's like her favorite movie. You know, she she loves that property. So kind of like how I was with the book. But then I went and saw Dr. Sleep and I'm like, no, dude, this movie is like really fucking good. She's like, I'm I'm not seeing it. And not long ago, like just within the last couple of months, I was watching it in the bedroom and it was it arrived at that scene. And I was like, all right, come here. You just got to see this. Just watch this scene. And she was she kind of sat there watching it for a few minutes and was like kind of rattled by it and was just like, no, I can't. I just, I can't do this. It's, it's too weird. And I was like, but it's good. And she's like, it's not bad. It's just, I can't, she couldn't disassociate, you know, but between the two things. And crucially, she had not seen the the scenes early in the movie with, um, you know, young Wendy, uh, uh, Dick and, mm-hmm. and, and Danny. But I think that scene is the key to the whole movie. It's it's really the point where you're like, holy shit. They definitely knew what they were doing here. It is key to the whole movie. And I think it's like one of the fundamental differences between the book and the movie is this idea of who Jack is. And you can kind of buy that there's this innate darkness. And yes, the hotel works on you and, and you know, haunts you and makes you into a monster. But um, Jack in the, in the movie, the shining, which is, you know, and Stephen King hated this, obviously was like always a monster. Uh, and the hotel just kind of amped that up and Dr. Sleep has to kind of play in that same sandbox of like, Jack is, is he's not going to have that redemption moment. The book gives him. And I think that's a, a much more uh, satisfying and realistic portrait of this character. I do not think that someone who broke his kid's arm and, you know, just has has a couple demons and the hotel's gonna you know possess him and it's not really him doing this violence i think he's a violent abuser and i prefer the adaptations that kind of run with that idea where he's he's sympathetic in some ways certainly that scene he he is sympathetic uh as a as a victim of the hotel also but we don't have to deal with him like you know as a as an angel at the end kind of right in light this thing you said a minute ago about stephen king being more sympathetic than he should to Jack Torrance is a really interesting thought. I had not thought of it from that angle before. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like keep selling me on this idea. Yeah. I mean, this is always, and and I, you know, I read, I reread the shining when I did uh, King of the dark podcast and I was really struck by how insistent the book is that Jack is possessed by the hotel, that it's not his fault that his rampage is caught. I mean, he's just like, it's not like he was tempted by the hotel. It's like the hotel has taken him over. And and the miniseries, I think really literalizes that he looks totally different. He is like fully possessed by the hotel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
in the book, I mean, Dick Halloran also has a brief moment when he's kind of possessed by the hotel and then he snaps out of it. And, and certainly like it's Jack's like weakness and like personal demons that allow that to happen. But I, I think it lets him off the hook in a way that um, the movie, the shining doesn't. And I know that, you know, Stephen King's problem was like, Oh, well, if Jack Nicholson always looks evil and crazy, it's not what, where's the, where's the switch when he, you know, goes evil because of the hotel. And it's like, well, maybe he doesn't have to be that way. Maybe he is always like, you know, a bad father and an abusive father. And, you know, the hotel made him more homicidal, but you know, he was always someone who was a danger to his wife and son. Uh, I think that is like, you know, more true to life. I think that like on some level, Stephen King gets it. And, and, you know, at the beginning of Dr. Sleep, Dan Torrance does like a horrible thing. He leaves this passed out woman and her infant child. And it's, it's awful, you know, and it, and it haunts him and steals their money. He, you know, it's, it's a monstrous thing, but I think that, yeah, the, 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 the fact that Dr. Sleep sort of the, the book ends with Jack's sort of being the heroic ghost, um, I don't love. I don't love the miniseries ending of Jack seeing Danny graduate. I mean, I have many other thoughts on the miniseries we don't have to get into, but um, yeah, I think that like that that Stephen King, in sort of writing himself into this character, wants to believe a little bit more that 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 Jack Torrance is like a most has has a good heart underneath everything and is just like taken too far by the hotel. And I don't like that idea of the Overlook fully possessing someone. I think it's a little bit. It's a little cheap in that way convenient yeah i mean it it, it it like i said it lets him off the hook you know it's like well you fully sold me good now i'm glad that i've okay great so i've i've said that stephen king is wrong about his own character you have fully sold me on this concept like this I'm, is a I'm, great i'm uh, glad if only on if only i hope stephen king is listening and uh agrees with me i actually hope he never hears my thoughts on his characters because they're, <laughs> they're his characters and and i and i respect his perspective on them Right. Um, but I, I just that I think that there's something a little bit dated about The Shining when you read the book, and it's just very much like good men drink sometimes and they do bad things, but really they you know they try their best, and it's like if you break your kid's arm, you probably shouldn't be around your kid again, as far as I'm concerned. That's my stance yeah, in anger. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah, it, he he didn't he wasn't playing with him, and then you know the kid like took a tumble down the stairs or something. This was <laughs> this was uh, him in anger hurting his child intending maybe not to go as far as he did, but he intended to put fear and, uh, and pain into this kid when that happened. I'd like to talk a little bit about the, like my personal theory that Mike Flanagan's movie, uh, is a secret dark tower film. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's a secret dark tower film. Is it? It's, It's pretty explicit. Well, I mean, listen, there's, he says, you know, cause a wheel, uh, Dick Halloran says cause a wheel, which is explicitly dark tower reference, but there's a difference between being, uh, you know, throwing in a nod, throwing in 19 on the kid's Jersey, having, right. you know, Ka, you know, being kind of hidden in Abra's collage of, of, you know, kid stuff, the word cause there. Like I, there's, there's a nod, but then thematically the whole thing is all about a cycle. The whole thing is about repetition in a, mm. in a, in a weird way, which is the, the ultimate dark tower, like deep cut dark tower theme. Uh, it, it is all about people trying, uh, uh trying a journey again. And that is Dan's journey. He is going through the same steps his father did making, maybe making some different choices, 
you know, that will affect the outcome. There's the whole fact that in, in the, in the movie, Dick Halloran is the ghostly uh, mentor to, to Dan. And the end of the movie is Dan being the ghostly mentor to Abra. Right. So it's, you know, there's all this stuff that the movie ends where it begins in, in a weird way, which is a very dark tower thing. Mm. It's also there textually because, that was one of my other issues with the book was the idea of the the vampires draining the steam from the victims who are talented psychics is like straight out of Dark Tower. Yeah, that's you know? the beam breakers, yeah. Yeah, the breakers and, you know, all the shenanigans going on in Algol Ciento. And that also felt knockoffish e to me. It, it kind of felt like with Black House, when you finally get to like, you know, the back half of Black House and it just becomes explicitly a Dark Tower thing. Kind of felt like that, but in a different way. Black House felt like fan fiction. The parallels between the true knot and the the people overseeing the breakers, it, it, that didn't feel as fan fiction-y. It just felt kind of, you know, like like a day-old I- idea. I, I, I do. I hear you on that. My, like, my fan-winky, like, explanation for all these things is also, like... It's always it's always some version of, like, well, they are the version of this in, our, in, in this reality. You know, there are... There are other worlds in these and like in, in another world, they're called this and they do that. And this is just like, right. this is the true, not in, all, in, in our reality or in, hmm. you know, Dan Torrance's reality. Uh, it's a, it is a little cheap. I am making excuses for King. I, but you know, you have, especially as he's gone, gone on in his work, I feel like he both intentionally and unintentionally pulls things in from the dark tower. And sometimes you kind of have to like explain it away that way there's a lot of weird continuity stuff with like what the shining is versus like what Carrie does, you know, like obviously she's telekinetic, which is different, but like, you know, there's also Firestarter. Like there's lots of powerful kids, Children. Kids, with, kids with powers. There's, there's, um, Oh, I I'm blanking on uh, the, the, the Institute. Um, is right. that, that's, that's the, that's the one. That, and that was the book. Sorry. That was the one actually that we had done on King of the dark that we were leading up to. Um, which is very much a book that feels like, again, like the Dark Tower, like these kids with powers being, you know, is it the shop? Is it the people, you know, and the Dark Tower? And you're kind of, you kind of have to be like, well, this is just an alternate reality version of the same the thing. Yeah. And to a small degree, the, the kids in it also, you know, have this like extra super protection, you know, insight, extra power where they're able to, you know, turn an asthma inhaler through the power of will into a thing that can defeat a you know, a, a semi Lovecraftian monster, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and yes. So I think that like, uh, the dark tower by sort of explicitly being like, there are many worlds and like, you know, you'll have characters that are sort of different in each world and you'll have these twinning characters and all of that allows for a lot of flexibility in that way. Um, but in some ways it feels like a cheap imitation. Sure. I do have to say, I love that Mike Flanagan throws in these like very overt references because I feel like this is the closest we will ever get to a dark tower extended universe, which is, right. like, you know, which is the dream, right? Like, you know, you're reading those books and you're like, what if like Anthony Hopkins showed up, uh, you yeah. know, and, and, and me playing that character and what it just, it would, it would be amazing. And also like, will never happen. And the dark tower movie kind of killed dead. Any hope that I had of a real dark tower, adaptation so i love in this in gerald's game having very overt references to to ka and to like the idea that there is some sort of like unifying force here and all things serve the beam uh etc plan again is like a hardcore dark tower nerd 
Like, you know, so I'm not surprised that these things have popped up. And had he ended up doing Revival, I think that there would have been probably some Dark Tower nods in there, too. He just can't help himself, you know, which I fucking love because, you know, I'm a Dark Tower nerd. So, like, keep him coming, Mike. It's so refreshing, too, because I can remember very vividly going to the press screening of Hearts in Atlantis going, you know, it's probably not going to be overtly Dark Tower as, as the story is, you know, the Brodigan story is, you know, but it'll be nice. I'm sure they're going to massage something in there for the Dark Tower fans and for King fans and like, nope, not at all. Nope, <laughs> not, not a one little mention. And then you fast forward to the Shining sequel and you have Dick Halloran saying, literally saying Ka is a wheel, you know, and you're like. Okay, where where was any hint of that in the the one that was actually a, a, a an overt dark tower parallel story? I remember Doctors. how happy I was in in the mist when when he was painting a, a you know the dark tower, and I was like, right. at least we you know we we got something. The mist is not expressly a dark tower story, but I was like, how cool to see the dark tower on the big screen, even if in in a painting. So I'm I'm all for any reference. How did y'all feel about um, the portrayal of the Overlook? in the Dr. Sleep movie. Do you think they nailed it? It obviously looks different than say the completely computer generated one from ready player one. Uh, Those, you know, Flanagan built those sets and shit. Did it feel like the overlook to you? A hundred percent to me. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no disconnect for me on there going, well, that's not exactly right. So I'm out of it. it. It, I mean, you can, you can have a problem with the whole concept of, Yes, this one thing happened, and so now this giant, huge, expensive plot of land and building has just been sitting there empty for 30 years. And, you know, there was a crime scene there, and that door is still there with, you know, with the axe axe in there. You know, it's like you you can – there is a bit of a jump you have to make to buy that everything is still standing and there wasn't, you know, 30 years of – change in somehow that happened in, in between there besides you know some cobwebs and and everything being a little grimier right. um but, and we, can't but even I think assume, we can't even assume that that's actually what it looks like in that reality you know that might be right. what the hotel is like beaming into for sure Danny's mind, but i so. mean there, there, if that was the intent there would there would have been a way for him to show that you know i i think that that you have to kind of take it at face value that that um, Dan says that they condemned the building or whatever after the events, you know, which is considering the long dark history of the overlook. It's pretty crazy that they moved uh, Jack's body or is it still like frozen somewhere in the hedge maze? <laughs> you would, you would assume that they would have had to have, uh, I mean, that's why, like, I I always think about when you see that shot of Ewan McGregor, you know, reframing his his face like his dad did, going, that's evidence. They would have removed that door and it would be in some fucking evidence storage somewhere, you know, that that was the the evidence. Dick Halloran died there. There was a murder scene. So I don't think you I don't think anything we're seeing in the interior of that overlook can be taken at face value. I think it's all sort of. I think it's all sort of conjured in their minds. Either I and, mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just just to answer your question though about like whether it feels like the Overlook from The Shining, I think it's like uncanny like that it does. I think mm-hmm. you know also the shot that it, earlier in the movie with the the interview that that the Dan has that is shot the exact same way as the interview right. from The Shining. Like it doesn't matter if it's picture perfect or not. Like you know exactly what it is, and it and the attention to detail is really impressive. And it never feels like it's at the cost of the plot, um, which I think is the the most surprising thing of all is that like it totally works for me. 
it feels very, very real and resonant and also, you know, serves the plot. I will say, since we're talking about like recreating sort of the original Shining, that my maybe my favorite like beat in the movie is when Rose the Hat sees the elevator of blood and just kind of like smiles and nods and moves on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, God bless Rose the Hat. I just like, you know, she's seen it all, including an including an elevator of blood. That's just like not something she's going to stop and think about too much. Rebecca Ferguson is one of the secret weapons of this movie. She sells the most ridiculous character that King maybe has ever come up with. And she sells her so well. I mean, the, the accent alone, I was like, you know, she, the sort of like, she's originally Irish, but she's lived in, you know, the U S for, I don't know, a couple hundred years. I forget what her whole backstory is, but just like the hint of Irish accent. And like, it's like such a, she really created that character or, or embodied the character in a way that made it her own. And it's, she's, it's a, she's a phenomenal villain. Um, I thought Rose the Hat was great in the book also, but I will, you know, I, I think that the movie version is, is better. Don't yeah. they describe her in the book as having like when she feeds the is my it's been a long time since I've read this. I read it when it came out in 2013, yeah. I think. And uh, and I haven't read it since. So my memory might be shot here. But I doesn't she kind of turn into a monster? Like in my mind, I remember like the, the describer is like having one tooth or something. So I she's do, like described as like the night flyer fucking vampire. I do vaguely remember the tooth thing. Yes, yeah. I don't think, but, but yes. Um, well, is also, she taking on the form of like an old hag or like, why does she have one tooth? No, it's like her mouth opens real big or something and like a, a giant, one giant tooth protrudes out. And like, I just remember the image kind of in my mind was, you know, the cover of, uh, or the not the cover, but the, the vampire and night flyer, you know, because that's what the vampire and night I'm thinking flyer about, does. I'm thinking about um, Maggie on The Simpsons when she is King and Kodos baby on the, or one of their baby on the Halloween special. And she, right. she has one like scary. Anyway, if you, I'm thinking, if you know I'm what I'm thinking about, about Alec Baldwin and Beetlejuice when he stretches his face out, <laughs> you know, but there's only one tooth in that mouth. That's like what I'm picturing. Right I'm glad now. we all have <laughs> divergent cultural references for this moment. Um, <laughs> but he, he's still got the hat on, though. Yes, the hat is like, you know, imbued with some sort of mystical power that is not quite explained, but they have to like destroy the hat in the book. It is a magic hat. Um, <laughs> it's very silly, but I, you know, I, yeah. Like Frosty, Frosty had one, and Rose the Hat has one. Absolutely. I mean, she totally sells that character. Um, I don't know. I watching the movie again, though. I'm like, and it, it deals with such heavy themes, but it's so fun, and like mm-hmm. it, it, like it, he just has so much fun with the material, and there are so many satisfying like scenes, and most of them involve Rose the Hat, but like the whole grocery store scene is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the scene of her trying to go through Abra's head and Abra turning it on her, which of course, like, because it's a Flanagan movie, we get a degloving scene because you can't not have <laughs> someone's hand being mangled horribly, um, to the point of like, I never want to see another mm-hmm. violence against hand scene. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so fun. And she, she is a huge part of that. Right. Here's one thing that's I I love the movie, uh, and but I will say one problem that I I do have with it is that Abra is shown to be so powerful and so in control of her power uh, at that I never really felt that she was ever going to lose in a confrontation with Rose. You know, there wasn't a moment where where I felt like that Abra was behind the eight ball. And so because of that, I didn't really feel 
as much of a threat for the end scene, the the finale scene. Um, it, 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 to put an example, it's kind of like how you know you watch Die Hard, you know the good guy is going to win over the bad guy, uh, but John McClane gets beat to shit throughout that entire thing, and you're you like everything he does has a cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you watch the later Die Hards, and it's just you know. 55 year old Bruce Willis sleepwalking, you know, on a jet plane and jumping, you know, onto a freeway and, and walking away without a scratch. And, and sudden, and there's a big difference there in terms of your investment in, in things. Now that this isn't <laughs> not to say that, uh, uh, I wasn't emotionally involved with her journey, especially when he Flanagan makes the decision to kill her father. She had stakes, but it was always for other people. I just never, I, I think that, there might've been something that that could have been done there to show Rose, the hat could have potentially bested her in, in that final confrontation. And that's why they needed the overlook as their ace in the hole. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, it very much feels like, you know, Dan is in more danger. He's out of practice and he's kind of a mess and obviously does not ultimately survive. So that was, he, he, he is in danger. I do think with Abra, like the, we haven't talked about it, but the like completely horrifying Jacob Tremblay murder scene, uh, which is like a a shockingly like graphic uh, torture and murder of a child in a a film um, that like it kind of exists in in part to really raise the stakes and show the amount of violence this movie is willing to do to a child. Um, It it goes a long way that, I mean, that scene in particular, but that, the the difference though is, is is physically maybe you know there's a, a a danger there but like Abra is just so powerful that I never believed for a second that that uh, uh, that Rose the Hat could could get in control of her in in dominate her the way that she dominated um, uh, the baseball kid. They know? also, yeah. I mean, the movie also like kind of picks off the true knot very very quickly. And so I don't know if you quite get like the history. I mean, you, you sort of get some of the mythology around it, but the idea that they've been, they've been around for a very long time, they are not that easy to kill. Um, right. Which is why in the book, they have to do that whole thing with in the cancer spirit. It's, I don't even want to, yeah. you know, there, there's much more, involved, there's much more involved than just shooting them all. So I think that like that the way that the, the, the movie does it, like they are, they do seem like they're quite easy to get rid of. Uh, um, and so yes by the end you're like i mean surely like abra can can stand up to this woman the king in the book introduces the idea that whenever these vampires are ingesting the steam they can that can come with bad stuff and that that is crucial to uh how they are defeated um and that is introduced in the the baseball boy scene where he has the measles and he infects the entire true knot with the measles whenever he catches it, which is, uh, you know, ridiculous. You, you know, uh, it's a ridiculous hat on a ridiculous hat on Rose the Hat. Because uh, <laughs> you, you have to buy the the fact that they're, you know, eating children's souls or spirits or essences and that a viral, <laughs> a virus can travel somehow uh, in this soul thing. So there's DNA in there somewhere that in, in interacts with their DNA or something. Um, but that's what makes them sick. And that's what makes them desperate to get Abra because Abra, they need the cleanse. Um, I, I actually kind of like what Flanagan does more where it's just, you know, we're exiting the age of magic a little bit. Right. And this is, you know, as the world is moving on, you know, children with the shine are becoming rarer and rarer. And so these vampires are becoming hungrier and hungrier. And like that to me is way more interesting. Um, 
Uh, and so I, I'm going to throw that out there, but I also want to just mention that, yes, the, the grandmother uh, that has cancer, uh, Danny in the book, uh, like in, she dies and he, he ingests her, her, uh, her essence or whatever, including her cancer. You know, he takes her steam and that's how he, he releases it to the true knot and they feed on that and they end up uh, becoming, uh, you know, sick with Abra's dead grandmother's cancer now. Right. That's like weaponizing John Coffey's powers. A little bit. Thinking yeah, about the biology of this stuff is a little bit tricky. And I, I, <laughs> I agree that the movie version, um, as, silly, as silly as it is, makes more sense. I mean, the the measles is a little bit like, okay. I mean, I for a variety of reasons, it seems like maybe... Like they're they're very powerful, but also like if you just eat the wrong kid, you have measles and it could kill you. Um, yeah, it, that, you got whooping cough now. <laughs> just <you> know, <laughs> it's it's a bit much, but that scene really really shook me the first time that I saw it. It is, you know, Jacob Tremblay. You, you hire the best and you get the best yeah. in terms it, of child. It is, it is legit, probably one of the best kid. Uh, performances I've ever seen in in how he play it doesn't feel like a kid acting it feels like for like you're on the border of watching a snuff film in that scene which is the most disturbing fucking thing he plays it so well yeah, yeah I, mean, I think also you, you compare it to like you know one of the problems that I've had with the various adaptations of, of it even though I, I I like the first uh it uh feature theatrical film um is that like I don't I never really believe the kids are in that much danger um i it, it doesn't always read to me as they're in real danger and i think that like um stephen king loves to inflict danger on children and in dr sleep and in the adaptation it's it's very upsetting and real that danger oh um, you know what i just realized i what i didn't finish my thought on the um the overlook hotel thing we were talking about earlier yes hold on Okay, so after when I saw the movie, I thought the Overlook looked a little off. It looked like the Overlook, but it also it was something about the angle maybe of the camera or the sets themselves. I was thinking like, well, maybe they built it a little smaller to sort of communicate that Danny was, you know, older now. You know, uh, when you're a kid, like spaces seem much bigger. And and certainly I think that the overlook of, of Kubrick's version of The Shining differs in in terms of, you know, space than than that of uh, Dr. Sleep. That's not even getting into the lighting or the decay of the building or, or whatever that that, you know, it's just um, just the, the size of the thing. And right after I saw it, I sent Mike a message and I was like, I, I told him all that. And I hope he'll uh, not be mad at me for. Uh, sharing the answer that that he gave with me but uh this is what he said he said um, stanley kubrick is a fucking hack yeah, i am the new king. <laughs> and this said he was gonna new- fight his ghost uh <laughs> now he said we tried to get it just right we were working with the idea that the hotel would feel a little smaller because dan had grown up so it was built a tiny bit smaller than kubrick's in a few places but the trike shots were as close as we could get them to be We had a few other issues, though. Kubrick built his sets right to the walls of his stages. But current safety protocols insist on a fire lane. So there was a few times our sets were a few feet smaller than this. And we had to scale everything down accordingly. It worked with our theme, but you're not imagining it. The gold room, for example, was almost 10 feet less deep than than Kubrick's. That's a little fun fact. That's fascinating. uh, Just just for everybody. Blame fire scene. If uh, if you picked up on that. Yeah. 
Safety protocols always getting in the way of realism. Real and everything. That's what I said. <laughs> One final thought and something that occurred uh, occurred to me while I was just kind of racking my brain of like, what else could we discuss about the film? I love how Abra and her family are people of color, but that is never central at all to their character. Right. You never have the villains, you know, making fun of their race. That to me is the ideal of like, these are just characters, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the story. And and I remember it was something that struck me because that's not how it was in the book. It was a change from the book. In the book, she's like a blonde haired, you know, white girl. Um, uh, but I think once you remove the necessity to have Abra be related to an established white character, Flanagan was like, cool. Now it's just whoever's the best girl for this part. I think that's just Flanagan. You know what I mean? Right. Like, he doesn't discriminate. His casts tend to be inclusive, I think. Um, and certainly his crews are. That is the, the right way to, to approach this stuff. But I think, that's, I think that's symptomatic of Flanagan. He's just a fucking good guy. You know? I, I, uh, he sounds like Christopher Reeve. You know, uh, but yeah, no, I, I remember I texted when I was editing Flanagan's uh, first episode with us. <laughs> I texted, I think I tweeted or I texted you. And I'm just like, hey, guys, I just realized that Flanagan just listening to his voice. That man sounds like Christopher Reeve. Yeah. And once, once you, you hear, hear that, you can never unhear it. Yeah, totally. I am. Um, I want totally. I think like to your point, like, you know, I go back and forth. I think, you know there's a whole debate over colorblind versus color conscious casting. Right. And like, right. there's the idea that like, you know, you want to be inclusive in casting, but you also like, don't want to ignore the realities of uh, a person's race and how that affects how they exist in the right. world. I think this movie does a good job of not, you know, um, the fact that Abra is black does not seem like it's not ignored, but it's not like part of the story. And I think that totally works in this context. I think in some ways it is deliberate, because of the character of Dick and how he's portrayed in the shining movie, which is a very seventies. I mean, I know it was 1980, but like, <laughs> you know, you know, like he has like the naked black woman with the Afro, like behind him in bed. It's, it's mm-hmm. a little bit, um, it, it falls into some, uh, stereotypes and, and has been criticized. And Stephen King himself has not been great with race, uh, in many, many of his, uh, books. Um, not for lack of trying the early one, especially, yeah, especially the early. Yeah. I mean, and that was, you know, I think reading his novels again, um, it it was, that was the part that I kind of struggled with the most is that like, I, as a kid did not notice this, there are things with race and, oh my God, gender and, uh, sexual identity that you read in these books and you're like, oh, these have not aged super well. Not, not the whole book, but these characterizations, and I think it is important in these adaptations to introduce diversity is a terrible like catch all word, but for the purposes of this diversity, inclusivity, making the world look more like the world actually looks, um, that is very important. Uh, I, I, I also think in this specific case that it is nice to have another black character with, with the shining uh, who's not right. Halloran, who's not sort of also falling into the trope. Uh, of the wise old black man who has magic powers. Like, again, these are very kind of old fashioned concepts and have like a young black girl with these powers feels uh, very relevant to me. Uh, So I think that was a a good choice. And, and, and also like something that has popped up in a lot of King adaptations, I would say is, um, you know, some, some more racially diverse casting. Uh, So I'm, I'm glad to see that continue to happen outside of just Flanagan. This is an interesting thread. Let's follow this. Like, I'm sorry if I'm keeping us long, but 
I, I have a question for Lewis. Lewis, you're a, you're a gay man, correct? Correct. Correct. <laughs> and you know, King's early stuff was pretty pretty rocky in terms of his handling of gay characters or just like throwaway lines that were were clearly you know not cool. Uh, as as much as the sort of casual racism problem that was in there or the misogyny and, and what have you. And in my mind, I've kind of thought that the opening of it with the Adrian Mellon murder was sort of like a turning point for him where he was making it clear that, you know, he was on the he was he was working towards being on the right side of history. He had you the know? best intentions. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I'm 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 curious what you think about the the opening of it and the the Adrian Mellon scene. Um, I don't love it. I think that um one of the big issues I have with that, you know, it was based on a real hate crime in Maine. Uh, I believe it was in Maine. It should have. I'm sure it was in Maine because you know. I didn't know that. It was on his mind. It was based on a real hate crime. Um, uh, and 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 I and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the person who was killed, but um, it was it was very much based on a real hate crime of someone who was thrown in a ravine. And I, I, in that context, it feels a little bit exploitative, especially because it doesn't really follow it slash Pennywise's MO, you know, that character. And, and, and there's something weird about like, Oh, he's like gay and childlike. And therefore it's like, makes sense that he'd be a victim when like, that's not how it really works. So I don't love it. I do think that like Stephen King has very deliberately tried to become more progressive and I think that you can see that more and more in his books. I think he still screws up a lot. I think he's an older white man. Uh, and I think that, you know, I appreciate his intentions. Um, I don't always appreciate his tweets. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough, you know, at the end of the day, like you can kind of like, you can see a progression in his writing that I think is admirable, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think he always gets it right. Um, and I, and I frankly think that like, you know, a lot of these stories like are still great stories there are a lot of he's written a lot of great novels and the adaptations are a space where you can create more depth to the world that's not there already and that and that and that's in terms of of gender and and race and sexuality which is you know as sometimes it's like you know in the stan mini series like you know changing the gender of some of the characters like changing the race of some of the characters like it's not you know it's 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 um it's it's not easy all the time but i think that like that is part of the job of the adaptation is to bring some of these stories into uh, the 21st century and our current conception of like what uh, a movie or TV show uh, can and should look like. It, it definitely feels like King gets a lot of the, the details glaringly wrong on some of this stuff sometimes, but you know, as we've discussed with Brian Fuller now on two very long episodes uh, with him, like Brian very smartly pointed out that King's love of the outsider and you know, the big beating heart he has for the, the people that are kind of shunned by society like makes opens up even a lot of his cis uh, characters into queer adaptation and queer reading. Mm-hmm. Um, the dude grew up in a, in, in a different era and he's trying, but you know, he, he has a big heart, but that, you know, doesn't, doesn't always mean that uh, he gets the details right. And, and that can be frustrating for, uh, you know, for the more progressive readers. Yeah, I think, but I think it's also like, you know, you look at things in their context and you appreciate them for what they are. And you're also like willing to, to engage with the work and be critical of it when you need to be. Right. Um, and, and I think that like, 
you know, it was my first King novel. I love it. I also like reading it again. I'm like, oh, the characters of Mike and Beverly are not super great for a variety of reasons. Um, not to mention a certain scene that we will never speak about again. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I think, you know, and there are attempts to sort of correct that. I will say it chapter two has one of my least favorite there's a lot happening there in terms of bearing your gaze and also being like, by the way, these people were gay. I really don't think that's the answer either. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a question that I'm glad that we're grappling with. And I think that, you know, I have a lot of faith in, in filmmakers uh, like Mike Flanagan who are willing to kind of like step outside the text and figure out how do we, how do we make this? Um, how do we keep the spirit of this alive and respect King's writing and also uh, make this feel more contemporary? Man, very well put. Great. I'm, uh-huh. glad we, I'm glad we were talking about some, you know, some real shit. Not that we weren't talking about real shit before, but you know, always, always happy <laughs> yeah, yeah. to go down that road. No, I, you know, these are, like I was saying before, these, these alleyways are often the best part of the show. I think it's important not for this show to be, you know, just a, a weekly blowjob to Stephen King. You know what I mean? Like there, there are things that are worth addressing and examining through our, you know, modern eyes and then sort of, you know, contextualizing those to now. We had, I had somebody in my mentions the other day that was, I was tweeting something about Stephen King and they were mad because he had made a joke recently on Twitter about where cocktail waitresses where it was sort of used in a derogatory manner, uh, in a joke he made. And I'm, I'm just thinking like, I don't believe Stephen King has hate in his heart. I don't believe like this is a, this is a, uh, a bad guy. I think he's just, he grew up in a different era and he's sort of navigating the new area. But I, 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 I do think that he's making an effort. And yeah, I think it's like more yeah, than many grandparents I could mention. Yes. You know what there's, I'm saying? there's a huge, there's a huge like degree between like being willing to call someone out when appropriate and canceling someone. And, and I don't think like my favorite writers are Stephen King and William Faulkner. And, and certainly they both had some issues. Uh, and and like, and, and, and it's a question of like, yeah, I mean, you take things in their context and you're willing to address them, but, um, yeah. And also acknowledging that there are no perfect people, you know, John Lennon is one of the most talented, influential, world changing, peaceful, loving people. Uh, he was also, um, a spousal abuser. I mean, those are two things that can be true at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated, it turns out. But as a perfect person, I feel totally fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're we're all perfect here, so there's nothing nothing to worry about on. But, but for most people, yes, that is true. It, it's it's a you know it's a wide spectrum of 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 people's perfectness, perfection. Y- yeah, I guess I'm not perfect. <laughs> well, this, this well was, that is a perfect place, I think, to put a pin in this. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, and thank you so much, Lewis, for for joining us. This was a lot of fun. It was really cool to kind of dig back into this this one. It's it's definitely one of the the more under underrated, underseen adaptations. I, I at least into the world on the whole. I think that within the King community, people acknowledge Doctor Sleep rules, but uh, I think this will be one in the next five, ten years or so. It'll just keep growing in in popularity. I hope I so. amongst the normies. What do you got? Uh, what are you working on now, Louis? You want to tease some shit? What's going on? I I wish I had something exciting to uh, tease, but I would just say to follow me on Twitter at Lewis Peitzman, where if I do something cool in the future, you'll know about it. Uh, <laughs> but in, in the in the meantime, I'm you know I'm 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 doing my day job uh, editing and and uh, 
enjoying that and trying to write when I can on the side. So I will uh, keep everyone posted. And remaking Dr. Sleep, as I understand it. Yes, which, I'm working on that, uh, but that's not fully, that's, you know, we should not announce that yet. It's on the hush hush. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Dr. Sleep, PhD. <laughs> he's, I think he's an empath. Whatever. It's, we'll figure out the details later. It's like a cross between <laughs> Dr. Sleep and Doogie Hauser. It's this that, is not a little bit Dr. Giggles. It's a, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my fucking God. Do not start me on Dr. Giggles. We'll be here for another 90 minutes. <laughs> well, thank you for, right, thanks, man. for joining us, sir. This was excellent. That's all I got. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Lewis for joining us to talk about Dr. Sleep. We finally got that title covered after many, many months of speculation from our listeners. I gather that uh, some folks are not going to be enormously pleased with my takes on the book, which I did not really care for, but um, I love the movie. So please leave me alone. Yeah, I I noticed that whenever we announced the title that... uh, that a whole lot of people on Twitter were just like, oh, that, I love that book. It's one of my favorites. I think it's even better than The Shining. And I can yeah. just like picture your, you like reading those as your like vein in your head starts throbbing a little bit. I was making the face the uh, Grinch makes, where his, his smile curls up on, uh-huh. on both corners. Yeah, that yeah. was that was basically it. Sorry, everyone. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about what's coming up on the KingCast. So as usual, we have our Friday Patreon bonus, and we also have the announcement of what the title is for next mm-hmm. week's main feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, which one do you want to hit first, Scott? Do you want to talk about the main feed, or do you want to talk about Patreon? Um, I will talk about the main feed. Our next main feed episode, we are returning to what is the most popular title in the King cast catalog thus far, the lawnmower man. And you might wonder why would we return to the lawnmower man after you already perfected it with Sarah Beatty. And I'll tell you, we have the star and director of an upcoming movie. And well, the director insisted that the star watch this movie for the first time. We're excited to talk to this person about how they they felt about Lawnmower Man after the first time. But things went wrong, didn't they, Eric? <laughs> yeah, we're going to spoil a little bit of this for you. Uh, it turns out that they didn't know that there were two cuts of the Lawnmower Man. And <laughs> this poor uh, actor decided at like midnight to start the two and a half hour long director's cut of Lawnmower Man, which none of us have actually seen. So a right. good chunk of this episode becomes him describing the insanity that was playing out and us trying to like figure out what was new and what wasn't. And what he was making up. Uh, yes, this, which is this, a, this particular guest is a, a known smartass. And so it was entirely possible that he was just making these things up whole cloth. Uh, we didn't know, but it resulted in a, a very entertaining conversation. You're going to hear a lot of crosstalk. You're going to hear a lot of uh, shenanigans, shit talking. There's going to be some special effects audio in this episode. It's uh, it is a uh, it's a five star banger. That's next Wednesday uh, available to everybody listening to this now. And then we have a special bonus this Friday for our Patreon members. Uh, you can sign up, by the way, if you want to financially support the show, sign up at patreon.com backslash the Uh, And then you can hear our beautiful voices 
discussing this Friday's bonus, which is all about the talisman. It's just going to be me and Scott. We're going to be talking through the history of the talisman, you know, uh, almost making it to the screen all in light of this new news of uh, Spielberg teaming with the Duffer brothers from stranger things on a Netflix adaptation of the talisman. Yes, I will be there and I'm very (laughs) excited. So we'll see you guys this Friday for talisman talk. And then next week we're going to return to the overall wearing (laughs) VR chimp loving Job in the lawnmower man. Oh, I can't wait to get back into cyberspace. See you then folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.